0: Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, I just wish the Lord would come back, avoid all this mess, (laughs) just show up, you know, that would be sound pretty good to me, verse 5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. From which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. We know that the law is good, if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, For whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. In our introduction, of course, we learned a number of things about Timothy. And we talked about his upbringing, a Gentile father, a godly mother, a godly grandma. And um, we noted his relationship with the Apostle Paul, a very unique relationship, very intimate relationship, uh, one of a mentor, one of a guide, and even the Apostle Paul expresses him as his son in the faith, and that word that was used there, his son in the faith, of course, has to do with even a, a biological connection in a sense, it's that kind of intimate relationship. And uh, so we, we noted those things as we went along in our introductory message. And then we arrived at lesson one where we talked to, uh, con- considered verses one through five. And in our first lesson, we were made keenly aware that the Apostle Paul's concern for doctrinal purity was, was I mean, at the top of the list. I mean, he was really concerned about doctrinal purity. And um, as a matter of fact, he even sent Timothy, his son in the faith, to Ephesus. Um, for the express purpose of exposing and ultimately extinguishing those heresies. And so we kind of noted that. We, we went through that. We discussed it. We learned some things last time we were together in the book of Timothy. We saw that we, we started talking about the church and its doctrine. And so last week or the last time we were together, we talked about the loss of truth considered. Today I want to talk about and address the law of God considered. The law of God. Because that's what we're going to see here in these next few verses. The Apostle Paul is going to address the law. And he addresses the law obviously because many of those false teachers were utilizing the law incorrectly. They were not using it lawfully, as he notes here in the passage. So we're going to take a look at that. And before we do, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for Just the the privilege of living in the most exciting time in history. Lord, what an amazing time to live. Lord, all the changes that have taken place in the last hundred years. It's amazing to see how technology has transformed our world. And Lord, um, it's just, uh, we're moving at a lightning fast pace in our culture, our society. Lord, it's an alarming pace even. It's almost scary as we see things changing so rapidly. And yet, Lord, we also know that it's part of your master plan. Lord, nothing's taking you by surprise. And so, Lord, we understand that there will be some challenges along the way. We understand that our beliefs and and our our, our position as Bible believers will be uh, questioned and even possibly condemned by many. Uh, Many will not understand it. Many will, uh, Father, possibly even... uh, just malign us and even possibly mistreat us lord we're just asking that you'd give us grace to stand for you and to live for you to not be ashamed of you or your word Now, father bless the service tonight as we consider uh, this particular situation in the word of god we know that when timothy was there in ephesus there was some real opposition and lord um the the apostle Paul's trying to help him and trying to encourage him and father trying to keep him on track And keep the people on track. Help us, Lord, to do the same tonight as we reconsider what they had to go through and dealt with. We'll thank you and praise you for it as you give us victory in Christ's name. Amen. So the law of God considered. We're going to talk about its fullest transformation. Again, I'm trying to keep all these F's and T's together. So its fullest transformation, verse 1 through verse 5, it says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. The commandment there, is, it's being spoken of, is found in verse 3 originally. I mean, the charge that he was, it was given to Timothy is there. It says, And I beseech thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went unto Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So he, he's giving him a command. He's giving him a charge. And now he's, he's talking about the end of that command or the end of that charge is charity. And um, that, the Greek word that's used there in the passage with that the word command there uh, lends the idea or, of a proclamation again a command or a charge and so it's, it's somebody receiving a command or a charge from a superior and then passing that down to someone else and so here we have the apostle Paul that's commanding or charging Timothy and Timothy's now supposed to pass that charge down supposed to take it to the next level now if you will that's the same uh, word as we, we see used over in the book of Acts chapter 5. When the high priest used it, uh, there in Acts chapter 5 verse 28, they said, did we not straightly command you, command you that you should not teach in this name? That's what the, uh, the, 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 the um, uh, particular um, uh, high priest said to, of course, the, the apostles that were out preaching the gospel, sharing the truth. And um, basically, they were saying this. And this is how it lays out. It's such a strong expression. It's basically saying, did, did not we command with a command? That's how em, you know, emphatic they were. Did not we command you with a command that you are not to preach the gospel, that you are not to talk about the risen Savior, that you were not to talk about Jesus of Nazareth, who was bodily raised from the dead? Did we not tell you that? And, of course, we know what they were so steadfast in their resolve. That they basically just said, they said simply this, uh, we ought to obey God rather than men. We ought to obey God rather than men. Sorry, but, but, you know, we understand what you're saying. And we, we, we can appreciate your, your zeal and, and your, your, you know, your real uh, concern in, in one sense. But honestly, you know, we have to obey the Lord. We've got to stand where God stands. Sorry, too bad. So your command, eh, takes second place to God's. And so that's what we see there, but it's the same word that's being used. And so when Paul gives Timothy this command, I mean, he's saying, now, listen, did, did I not command you with a command? I mean, this is very important, and he's being very emphatic with his command. And his, his command was that Timothy silence these Gnostics and silence the legalists in Ephesus and ultimately lead them to, uh, you know, a, a love and a goodness and, and that simple faith that the gospel leads us to. Remember what the Gnostics were. Let me just remind you again who they were. They were a sect that believed that God was transcendent, which means basically that God is far removed from his creation, that he's very hard to reach because, you know, he's so holy and perfect and we're so sinful that God can't have anything to do with us. So much so that the Gnostic believed that that God himself could not even have created us, really, because he couldn't have got that close to the creation at all. So it's really a mess there. And um, the Gnostics, you've got to understand, they believed themselves to be Christians and professed themselves to be Christians. The only problem was they didn't believe in a bodily resurrected Christ. They didn't really believe that, that he was incarnate and that he died and was buried and rose again. And we know from the word of God in First John 4, 3, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. The Gnostics were no more Christian than the man on the moon, but they professed to be Christian and through history often were referred to as Christian. The legalists, on the other hand, were Jews who demanded that one keep the law in order to be saved. You had to follow through with the commands and the requirements of the law. Uh, they, they may have, uh, at one point, they, they, they may have added faith in Christ to their list of to-dos, but they never discarded The law, as God intended it to be discarded. So they may have added the fact and said, well, we believe you have to trust Christ your Savior, but then don't forget, you have to keep the law. That was the legalist. That was the Judaizer. And so basically, Paul emphatically commands Timothy and says, listen, you need to silence those Gnostics. You need to silence those legalists. You need to to make sure that you're putting a stop to that because it's going to be a cancer that ultimately destroys the church from within. As we noted earlier in our study, the word wolves came up. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, the Apostle Paul expressing that soon, after my departure, wolves will show up. And we know what wolves do. There's nothing kind about a wolf. It, it's a predator, you know. It's going to eat you up and spit you out, so to speak. And these wolves, as was outlined in the, the passage, were those that were... were um, Promoting questions, they were um, inciting quarrels and fights and bickering and and just kind of going at it and the problem was that the, that the old uh, do's and don'ts of those legalists were never replaced with the real emphasis of the Word of God or the or, or the gospel which was love because that 's what it 's really about it 's about love and um, you know I know as Baptists sometimes we get a little nervous when we start Talking that kind of stuff, but that's a good thing. Uh, love's all right, it, it works, it's God's plan, it's God's way, and that's what the, the the law was not about love folks. You know, you kept the law because you were afraid of the punishment. I mean, you live for God today because of love, at least you should obviously. And, and so, you know, we could say it this way. In the Old Testament, you obeyed because of law. In the New, you obey because of love. The law of love, which Timothy was charged to uphold, it, it transcended those old laws. It, it, it far exceeded all those rules and rituals of the Old Testament. It's no longer a duty to do what we do. It's a delight. We have the privilege of doing it. And that's big time. So, Paul charged Timothy to make the law of love clear to the people in Ephesus. Why? Because the legalists were still influencing and infecting a number of people there in the city, especially in the church. So we we note, first of all, its fullest transformation, the law of God, but then also we see its false teachers in verse 6 and 7. Notice what it says here. From which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain janglings, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor of they affirm. So in First Timothy, we, we read these words, and, boy, I'll tell you what he says. From which some have swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. Paul's speaking again of the legalists. These legalists have, I mean, they took God's hands off the steering wheel, and they put their hands on the steering wheel. Doesn't sound familiar, does it? I've never done that. Have you? But nonetheless, that's what these legals were doing. They took God's hands off the steering wheel. They put their own hands on it. And he puts it this way. He says, they have swerved. I mean, they swerved to avoid something. The simple gospel. It's so simple. But they swerved to avoid it. Have you ever swerved in your car? Have you ever tried to swerve to get away from something or to avoid something? Maybe it was a little animal on the road come running across. You swerved real quick. That's exactly what they did. Here's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. And they see it there in the roadway and they swerved to get away from it. But notice they instead turned aside to the law. They turned aside to the law. And the law sported a lot of excessive rules and regulations. And that was a problem because the law had no place now in the New Testament church as far as, as far as at least a system was concerned. Now, we know somebody else who turned aside as well. A guy by the name of Moses. You remember him? Well, over in the book of Exodus chapter 3, turn there if you would. Exodus chapter 3 verse 1. He turned aside also. But we're going to notice it's a little bit different than these legalists that turned aside. These that believed that they had to add the law of God to salvation. Notice it says in chapter 3, verse 1 of Exodus, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian. and He led the flock to the backside of the desert, came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. The angel of the Lord, ants, appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not concerned. And Moses, consumed, not concerned, was not consumed. Just hit me, I did not say that correctly. And Moses said, I will now, what? Turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I mean, even as this turning aside, changed Moses' direction. I mean, literally changed his direction in life. Where once he was headed off into the wilderness to care for the the sheep, now all of a sudden he finds himself journeying toward Egypt in order to care for a nation. He turned aside. When you turn aside to something, you're going to be heading in a direction. Well, unfortunately, this turning aside changed the direction of those that were Involved in the New Testament church. It it caused them to turn aside or to avoid the gospel and turn toward what Paul called vain janglings. The word translated vain janglings in 1 Timothy 1 6 is a long word that I will not try to pronounce. But it refers to foolish talking. I mean, what he's saying is, is that these, these Judaizers or these legalists and, and these other false teachers. They forgot what true Christianity was really all about. They forgot. And instead, they, they found themselves lost in a sea of words. They were just spilling out these reasons for why they stood where they stood and telling people that they have to do this and do that and that this is right and this is wrong. And, boy, they just were caught up in a bunch of words. It, it kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of Malachi. Remember in the book of Malachi... Just before the Old Testament comes to a conclusion, God, he, he, he leaves his word, and, and he's, going to, he's not going to speak for 400 years now. So at the end of the Old Testament, uh, we find that he leaves his last words in the book of Malachi. Um, he uses one of his prophets to do so, and now for 400 years, he's going to be silent. It'll be 400 silent years. But what does he say before he goes silent there? It's interesting, over in chapter 2, verse 7 of Malachi, he says, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words. Isn't that something? It, it kind of like these vain janglings. You've wearied the Lord with your words. I mean, it's interesting to note that although God is very quick and God is very anxious to hear from His people and to, to receive word from us, the fact is, is that he can grow weary of our words if they're rooted in unbelief and foolishness. You ever know somebody that just talks and talks and they just talk a bunch of foolishness? And you just get weary of listening to it? It's great. You've got to listen to that junk again. Are you kidding me? Oh, boy. Oh, we're going to go see so-and-so. And you're thinking, oh, great. we're going to hear it all night again. You ever been there? That's what God's saying to the people of Israel. At the end of the book of Malachi, he's saying, I'm I'm wearied. I'm so tired of your meaningless words. And boy, you know, if we're not careful, we can have some meaningless words. You know, we get in prayer and we just kind of go through the motion. You know, we get in our Sunday school class and we just keep teaching the same old stuff because we don't take the time to really study it out. They just God's up there just going, would you, are you kidding me? I, I want to hear from you. I really do. I care about you. You can cast every care on me. But please, would you just stop running your mouth and say something worth saying? That's what he told the Israelites. And that's exactly what was going on with these, these, these Judaizers or these legalists and, and these Gnostics. They were just running their mouth. They were talking. They were saying things. They may have sounded like they had some real intelligence. They may have sounded like they'd really hit on something new and innovative. But in reality, God's going, you know what? It has nothing to do with me and my word. I'm growing extremely weary of it. It's vain jangling. Finally, we see... The law is foolish transgressors. We noted the foolish transformation. It's false teachers. And now we notice it's foolish transgressors. In verse 8 through 11. We're going to note some things here. It says. But we know that the law is good. If a man use it lawfully. Knowing this. That the law is not made for a righteous man. But for the lawless. And disobedient. For the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murders and fathers and murders and mothers, for manslayers. Let's stop right there, but we can keep reading there through 11, but isn't it interesting what's going on? Obviously, there's a problem with people killing their moms and dads. Somebody killed mom and dad. Isn't that something? We think we live, as was mentioned the other day, I don't know who said it. We, we feel like we live in the worst generation ever. It might have been Mr. Jurgen in our, our Saturday morning uh, soul winning rally. But we we, we sometimes think we lived in the worst generation ever. Man, back then, there were things going on as well. Horrible things. Horrible crimes against humanity. Horrible crimes against people. Horrible crimes ultimately against the God of heaven. We see the goodness of God's law, though. In 1 Timothy 8 and 9, we've read some things there just a moment ago. But see, the law... And this is interesting. It served a great purpose in its day. We know that. But it still serves a purpose and is valuable as long as we understand its limitations. See... If you're not careful, you get this train of thought that the Old Testament's thrown out the window. There's no merit to it at all. We have to focus solely on the New Testament now. We're in a new covenant, a New Testament. So the Old Testament has no purpose, no relevancy whatsoever for us today. That is not true. Paul wrote that the law is good. But then he included a condition. He did say, if a man use it what? Lawfully. So you can use the law unlawfully, or you can use it lawfully. The idea is that the law is good. And, and that idea was, was also mentioned in the book of Romans chapter 7, verse 12, when the Apostle Paul said, Wherefore, the law is holy. Now this is in the, Old, in the New Testament, mind you. The law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. In the Old Testament times... The law served a double function. First of all, the law provided a system. It provided a system. Now again, the law, it it provided a manner of life for the Old Testament believer. If you were, were a believer in Israel and you were under the law, it literally provided you a system, a manner of life by which to live. It probed every nook and cranny of your heart. It dug deep into your soul. It demanded obedience at every level. And if you didn't measure up to that level of obedience that God demanded, then there could be very serious consequences. The law consisted of a holy, uh, excuse me, a body of ritual, a body of regulation, which, one, upheld a system of sacrifice. It it literally defined how we were to sacrifice to God, whether it was lambs or bullocks or doves or whatever it might be. The Old Testament law provided a system, and that system provided uh, for, for sacrifice and how to get it done. And then also, too, it sustained an elaborate ceremonial priesthood that was connected to a visible, physical temple. That priesthood functioned as God outlined it and designed it. There was a system of religion, how it was to function and work. Just like in the New Testament, you know, the church, He says how we're to behave ourselves in the the church of the living God. Well, you know what? They were to behave themselves in that temple, in in that, that, that tabernacle, even in the wilderness. And then that law, yes, provided that those rules and regulations that upheld a system of sacrifice, sustained an elaborate ceremonial priesthood, but finally designated certain feast days fast days, new moons, and Sabbaths, said this day is important. This is a day you will fast. This is a day you will worship. This is a day you will... Man, it provided a system for Old Testament saints to function and to live by. The law as a system was abolished at Calvary. It's gone. It's done away with at Calvary. The law as a system. You do not have to keep... New moons, you don't have to keep feast days, you don't have to follow through with this system of sacrifice, you don't have to sustain this elaborate ceremonial priesthood. Those things are gone. They were done away with at Calvary. When God rent the temple, that veil at the temple, he rendered Judaism obsolete. But hold on, the law provided a system, yes, but it also provided a standard. It provided a standard. The Ten Commandments provided a very general description of God's expectations or demands upon His creation. Very general. And then He turns around in those five books of the Old Testament. It's often called the Pentateuch. And He begins to define those Ten Commandments. He begins to explain them and express them in a way, very practical way. But see, these particular definitions... Provide a minimum standard for human behavior. A minimum. See, the moral laws embody timeless principles. And those timeless principles apply to all things that are divine and all things that are human in relationship. See, every relationship you have is governed by moral law. And it is governed in the Word of God in that law that was given to us in the Old Testament. For instance, the Ten Commandments demanded some things. Worship of God alone. That hasn't gone away. It did not disappear when we got rid of the system of the law. The standard, this law is a standard, is still enforced. There's still to be only one God, and He is God of all. He's Creator. It it demanded total freedom from idolatry and profanity. That's still in force today. God doesn't want any other idols. Just because we're in the New Testament doesn't mean we can now bow down to idols and still be forgiven, saved, and on our way to heaven. That doesn't please the Lord. It, It demanded obedience to parents. That law said, listen, you youngsters, you are to obey your mom and dad. Hey, that didn't go out with the New Testament. They didn't say all of a sudden, children don't have to obey mom and dad anymore. It's cool, you're not under law. Man, feel free to express yourself as you choose, young people. That's not the case at all. That, that, that law is a standard. It demanded a hatred for some things. A hatred for murder. A hatred for adultery. A hatred for theft and lying. A hatred for covetousness. That hasn't changed because we're in the New Testament and no longer under the law. I recently read that a 24-year-old over in New Zealand or somewhere, I think it was, uh, was given the right to kill themselves, to take their own life. They've had warred with depression over the years, and the law there in that country is that you can euthanize yourself if you choose, if you're a certain age. And now this one, this young man is, Oh, this young lady's only 24. She decided it's time she can't deal with it no more, so she wants to take her own life. They're supporting her in it. That ought to bother you. That ought to bother you. First of all, what 24-year-old really knows what's going on in life, especially if they've had a rough upbringing? I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I just don't, I don't get it. I, I don't understand why all of a sudden now man decides when, or, when he won't die. I thought that was God's business. Now listen to me. I understand. I, I would hate to watch somebody I love suffer, and I I could understand somebody. I really could. I could understand somebody taking matters in their own hands to to, to alleviate that kind of suffering and pain. I I, I can understand it as a human. I don't know. I don't believe biblically it's right to to do that. But I'm saying I could understand that because. I've never been there, so I don't know how I'd respond to that. But I'd hope I'd have the grace. God would give me the grace to just love and to hold on and just to, render, to, to continue to trust the Lord. And if it was me, I'd hope God would give me the grace just to deal with it, you know. But man, I tell you what, we've gotten to the place where if we're not careful, we don't hate murder. We embrace it. We hold to it. Look at our babies being murdered. There's nothing hated about it. Matter of fact, it's embraced in our country. It's considered at times, it's viewed as almost being merciful. Well, at least you won't have to bring them up in that environment. So just take their life. They're so lucky. Aren't you glad you weren't aborted? Now again, I, I, I'm just saying, it's one thing. Listen, that moral law hasn't changed. I don't care. You can call it Old Testament. You can do it whatever you want. But the reality is, is that the law as a standard is still enforced Those are timeless principles. They're non-negotiable principles. The law as a standard is as much in effect in our age of grace as it was in the Old Testament times. That's as much as it is. Now again, we we can go ahead and play games with it and we can try to dismiss it. But, but what has changed then? Okay, obviously, if, if okay, we have the law and we say as a system it went out with Calvary, as a standard it's still enforced because there's a moral element and God's moral laws are still enforced today in our lives, our culture, our society. What has changed then? God's attitude toward the sinner. That's changed. At Calvary, he provided a perfect redemption for sinners. And then on the day of Pentecost, he provided a perfect means of living the new life in Christ. The power of the Holy Ghost indwelt in us. And as a result of that, Christians can now live above the law in a realm ruled by a four-letter word, love. Doesn't it bother you when you've tried to work with your children You've encouraged them to do right. You've loved on them. You've provided for them. And they are determined to rebel. And down deep, you you take it personal. You love them. And you think to yourself, why can't they see how much I love them? And why won't they return that love by being obedient? Why are they being so self-willed and so self-centered? God doesn't want us... And you you, you discipline them. You you do what you have to do because you're trying to protect them and you're trying to help them in the future. Hey, youngsters, let me tell you something. If mom mom and dad discipline you, you ought to thank God for a parent that cares enough to do that. Especially when down deep, you know you probably deserved it. And every once in a while, mom and dad may give it to you when you don't. It's just to keep you in practice. But you know... The fact is, is that God doesn't want to have to spank us. God wants us to obey Him because we love Him. That's what the New Testament's really about. It's not about walking around worried about God hitting you with a baseball bat in the back of the head because you decided to turn your back on Him. It's about wanting to face the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not what I ought to be, but God, be merciful to me, love on me, and I love you, and I just need you to help me. And God says, man, listen, that's all I want is you to love me and to have a desire to please me with your life. And when you have that, things will start to happen. The Spirit of God is living in you. He'll empower you and enable you to overcome things in your life if you genuinely care what God thinks. See, that's why Paul could say the law is good. If a man use it lawfully, though, You you don't have to dress a certain way to be a Christian. To be saved, you don't have to dress a certain way. You could run around half naked outside and still be saved. <clears throat> you could do it. But down deep it comes to a place in our lives. Do we ask ourselves what honors God most? Because my real heart is to please him, not me, but him. I love him so much because of him loving me that I don't want to disappoint him. And I don't want, to, I don't want him to be upset or, 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 or just feeling like, wow, I, I invested and I've gotten nothing. And I know as a parent, if you, you may have felt that way at some point. As a, a ball team, you, you coach a team. You may have felt that they just aren't giving back and you're putting your whole on to it. God's putting everything into it, folks. And all he wants for us as believers is to love him. Not to add to the word. Not to add to salvation. But to simply want to please him with our life and our all. And when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be peaceful. peace with him. Now, there are some just cantankerous. You live peacefully with all men as much as life in you. And sometimes as much as life in you ain't enough. Do the best you can. But the Apostle Paul was trying to encourage Timothy to stand against the Gnostics, the false teachers, the legalists, those that had another gospel other than the one that was given and presented to the Apostle Paul, that was given by commandment, and then he, by commandment, was giving it to Timothy by commandment that same gospel of liberty and love is a gospel that we must live. I don't wear this jacket tonight because I'm trying to impress you. I want to look the best I can. I'm in his house. And I want God to know one thing. This is serious business for me. When I stand behind this desk, it's no game. I'm representing the one that died for me. I want to know it's first class. Yeah, there'll be times, youth rally, I'll probably wear a little pullover shirt or whatever. I'll never wear a muscle shirt because I'd ruin the life of all these women in here. All these men would be ruined. But the fact is, is that we've got to always remember why we do what we do. It's for Him. It's out of love for the Lord, okay? It's out of love for Him. Father, we come to You. Thank You, Lord.